Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Potomac Perspective. I'm Neil Shapiro, Head of Corporate Communications at Stiefel, joined as always by our Chief Washington Policy Strategist, Brian Gardner. Hey, Brian. Good morning, Neil. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you as well. Thank God for the podcast, Brian, because I'm done with the Mets. So the season's over. I'm not watching anymore. I could put all my efforts into preparing for the Potomac Perspective podcast. Well, you know... I haven't given up on the Yankees. Although, you should. Uh, you know, well, hey, look. Um, Better. They, they are certainly underperforming, and their owner doesn't understand why fans are upset, which to me is just bizarre, because um, you're spending all this money on players who are severely underperforming. Um, I wouldn't uh, know about that as a Mets fan. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, it, uh, Hal Steinbrenner had an interesting comment a couple weeks ago that, you know, New Yorkers, they, you know, they demand New York Yankee fans, they demand their stars. And my reaction was no, you know, we want our championships. So I'll take a championship over a star any day. And they haven't won in a while. And I think collectively we are, we're angry, but um, uh, Hal doesn't seem to quite understand that, but that's why he's the owner of the New York Yankees and I'm not. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think the Yankees certainly have a better shot at turning the ship around a little bit than the Mets. Depends uh, when Judge gets back too. I mean, and he could be out for at least another month. I mean, we, you know, Yankee fans may not see him till Labor Day. You don't know. Thank you, Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, I, I know you. You really, wow, you're really holding a grudge on this one, wouldn't you? I believe this is the second podcast in a row that you've thrown a little shade their way. Yeah. Well, you know, when when you know your ancient stadium is not state-of-the-art and is set up to hurt you know one of baseball's greatest stars uh i think it gives me a reason to be angry bitter upset fill in the blank well i know that this has nothing to do with politics or public policy or the markets or potomac perspective but i am right now putting out there an open invite for buck showalter to come on potomac perspective and face the music and I would love him to come with us and we could question him a little bit about some of the decisions that he's making um, with a $300 million payroll team that is on pace to lose 90 games for the season. I know. I, I, I think it's a great opportunity for Buck. And if, you know, when he gets the invitation, I, I think he should think long and hard about it. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's going to happen, um, but happy to have it. You know, this is going to be a hard segue. And I know we've, in all honesty, we have a lot to cover. There's a lot of serious topics to cover, but I want to start, start with the economy a little bit, but we could, this is a good segue because Justin Verlander is making, I think, $43 million for the Mets. Uh, he barely goes four or five innings a start. So at the rate this is going, he's missed a couple of stars. So at the rate this is going, he's probably going to end up getting somewhere around a few hundred thousand dollars an inning, um, the way he pitches for the Mets, if he even if he even makes it through the season. So that's Verlander economics or Mets economics. But maybe where we start, Brian, this is a good segue into Biden economic Bidenomics. Bidenomics. I said that correct because the president has um, supposedly a major speech plan for this week to talk about the economy. Um, why don't we start there? What do you hear about um, about that address that he's planning? Yeah, so it, it's it's a I think it's a kickoff address for um, for his reelection campaign. Um, uh, you know, he's, they haven't done a lot of events um, yet, um, a lot of big public events, but um, 
I, I think it has to be looked at. The speech has to be looked at in the context of 2024 and a re-election campaign. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think he's going to touch on? So they they they're calling it a major speech. Um, I don't think investors though should expect a lot of new policy proposals mm. um, because it's part of the re-election campaign. I think it's going to highlight his record on the economy, what what the administration has done so far, the bills that have been passed, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips Act the original COVID, uh, the Biden administration's uh, original COVID response bill of March 2021, um, and kind of go through why those uh, pieces of legislation are helping Americans or how they're helping Americans. Um, and I think he's going to reiter reiterate, excuse me, uh, proposals he wants to implement but hasn't passed through Congress yet. So I think we're going to hear more about higher taxes on the wealthy and corporations, probably going to hear about more about onshoring of U.S. manufacturing. So it's it's um, it's going to be a mix of what I've done for you so far and what I would do in my second term. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the economy is always a big issue for every election, right? Pocketbook issues, but the truth is, it's a little risky for Biden, I would think, because the poll numbers are not great in terms of how people feel he's handling the economy. Right. Now, it, it, uh, the economy is a vulnerability for the president. Um, a recent Reuters poll showed that about 40, excuse me, 54 percent of voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. So he's vulnerable to Republican attacks on the economy. Um, furthermore, the, the possible the, the timing of the possible recession, a possible recession um, yeah. has been pushed back into 2024. So that's closer to the election than what a lot of people have been expecting, say, a year ago. So if there is a recession, and with the caveat, big if, we don't know, um, but if there is a recession, mm -hmm. then the timing of that could be problematic for Biden. You know, he's he's leaning into the economy. And if there's a recession later, he's not going to be able to escape blame. If you lean into it now, you're going to have to own it later. Um, so that being said, the economy, that's it's defied a lot of predictions. Like, you know, I yeah. Talking about the recession predictions, they haven't been right so far. Um, the economy's been more resilient than a lot of people expected. Inflation has admittedly stayed stubbornly above the Fed's target. It's moving lower, but it's stayed above the target. But look, if inflation continues to decline and the economy avoids a recession, then you know you mentioned it being a risk for Biden. Maybe the, the polling switches around and it, be, and it becomes a positive for him. Um, it's too soon to know, but um, I think there are risks and opportunities for Biden. Let's put it yeah. that way. And when you when you say of you know recession, we're talking about a, the classic definition of a recession. But a lot of people, including some of the folks at Stiefel, like Thomas Show, who runs KBW, would argue that there are there are several pockets of the economy that are already in a recession, and that whether or not we get a classic classically defined definite uh, you know inflation um it sort of feels like a, a recession in many in many areas for most folks yeah if, if you want to swap out the term recession just you know for weakness yeah. we're a a suboptimal economy that's not firing on all cylinders yeah. and it, and just people don't feel good about 
the current state of things, yeah. I mean, as opposed to two straight quarter, two consecutive quarters of uh, negative uh, economic growth. Yeah. And you could potentially, as you laid out some economic scenarios, you could potentially wind up in a, in a, in a scenario where as the 2024 election gets closer, the Fed is actually in a position to start cutting rates. Cutting rates, yeah. I mean, which is another benefit uh, to the... Yeah. To, I mean, to, that, that's a that's a potential benefit for Biden, but yeah. that but if the Fed's cutting rate, it probably probably is an indication that the economy is, yeah. is is weak at that point. Um, uh, so that, that that's not necessarily a positive for the Biden re-election effort. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, speaking of, since we've talked a little bit about the 2024 elections, um, the Republican primary is. I guess starting to really heat up. Um, what what do you think the state of the field is for the for the GOP? So it's still early, but Donald Trump is in a very very strong position. Um, the recent indictments, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but the recent indictments really have led to a a rally around the leader reaction among Republican voters. It's it's almost as if Democrats and various prosecutors want Republicans to renominate him. It's like it's like they're being Republican voters are being baited into renominating Trump because everything that government officials do uh, vis-a-vis Trump winds up helping him. It, it, it really is amazing. Um, it shouldn't be surprising at this point, but it still is amazing. Um, now, Look, some political analysts, when they look at the polls and the, the big Trump lead anywhere from 30 to 40 points, maybe even a little bit more in some polls, they've pointed back to past cycles when early Republican frontrunners and Democratic frontrunners in, in Democratic primaries faded. Uh, faded. Yeah. Um, I have the feeling this is different and, and it, it really should be different because Trump is not a typical candidate, stating the obvious. Um but it, it, what I mean by that is he is a de facto incumbent, right? Norm, those past cycles, you were dealing with candidates who are running for the first time. Trump isn't, right? He's a former president of the United States, and that puts him in a different category. His name idea is universal, through the roof. It's not like Rudy Giuliani in 2008 or Scott Walker in 2016, where a lot of Republican voters didn't know either one of them. And even with Giuliani in 2008, a lot of Americans knew him from 9-11. Republican voters didn't know him the way they know Trump. Everybody knows Trump. They all know him, his his character, his flaws. So the chances of him melting down at some point are very low because most Republican voters are just going to dismiss it. They know everything about him already. It's it's to me it's always the stuff you don't know that comes out and and bites a candidate. But what what's there not to know about Donald Trump? Yeah, so I and think voters are sticking with him, and I, I think as we sit here at the end of June, um, you gotta say it's it's Trump's race to lose, and I don't think he's going to lose it at this point. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that. You know, it's almost as if some Democrats and and various prosecutors actually want him to be. The Republican nominee. I feel the same way with some of the media outlets. As much as they say they don't want to cover him, stuff like that, they are salivating at the idea. Uh, it's great for ratings. It's it's absolutely great. Yeah, and the other thing that that I think, um, and Brian, obviously you weigh in here. We're sort of seeing the same phenomena as we saw in 2016, which is that the larger the field, the better. I mean, the the better it seems to play for Trump. No, a, a little bit. You know, it, 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 there there are about a dozen candidates now. 
depending on how you count them, some of the fringe candidates you, you may not include, but let's call it a dozen right now. Um, that's down from the 16 or 17 um, from, from 2016. Um, and look, I expect some of them are going to drop out by the end of the year. I mean, they're, they're just not going to have any money. They're not going to have any prospect of going forward. Um, they're probably in it to get their name ID up. You know, they have ulterior motives and they've accomplished what their goal was. And you get to the end of the year and you just can't afford to be out on the road campaigning because you don't have enough money and they'll, they'll, they'll drop out before the end of the year. So that the field is going to shrink at some point, but the size of the field right now is definitely helping him. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, one of the things that Trump or Biden in the second administration is going to have to confront is foreign policy. And it's been kind of a crazy three or four days when it comes to Russia. I mean, we've been talking about China and other areas, but um, this Russia situation is really pretty serious. And 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 what do you make of what's gone on, you know, over the past weekend, really? So as we as we talk about this, I I, I think we have to do so with a level of humility um, and modesty, um, because there's still a lot we don't know about what happened in Russia on Friday. Um, when Evgeny uh, uh, Prigozhin, his Wagner group, the, the mercenaries in that group, took over a defense ministry office and started heading towards Moscow. Yeah. Um, the reasons for why it happened are important, but um, it's still very unclear. Um, so I think we're going to learn a lot more in the coming weeks that could color how we view the situation broadly in Russia. Um, but still, as we sit here today, there, there are a couple of possible implications. First, from some accounts, the Wagner Group was among the more effective Russian forces in Ukraine, um, as the regular Russian army really struggled. Um, so what's happened um, in the, the, the settlement over the weekend that was brokered by the Belarusian president was that the Wagner Group is kind of being disbanded, is being absorbed into the regular army. That raises the question, will its members, who were quite effective, um, are they going to make the Russian army more effective? Or are, is their influence going to dissipate as they leave the army, they come under the leadership of the Russian army's leadership and Ministry of Defense? I, I, I suspect that the influence of the Wagner Group will be diluted, dissipate, um, and I think it's probably a positive for Ukraine in its war against Russia. Um, also, it the whole situation undermines Putin, right? Mm -hmm. It shows weakness. It shows vulnerabilities. Um, and the fact that Prigozhin criticized the war in Ukraine publicly um, in a way that you don't get in Russia, we haven't gotten in Russia so far, that could galvanize public opinion uh, against the war. Um, just that, you know, on a tangent, um, you know, saw some of the uh, the clips over the weekend in, in the, the city that um, the Wagner Group had occupied in southern Russia as as they as the Wagner Group left and the police came back into town, there were a lot of protests against the police. And so that may be an indication of uh, a deterioration in support, public support for the war. Um, anyway, it's, it's too soon to know how um, this is all going to impact Putin, but he's weaker than a month ago, which raises questions about his position, not to mention the question of who's going to who would replace him if he were to be deposed. And would a new leader of Russia be more antagonistic towards the West or less? We don't know any of this yet, but it, there. so there are a lot of questions. Um, 
this is a very, very interesting time in, in that part of the world. And what do you think, you know, we talk a lot about China in general, Brian, but how do you think this whole situation, um, are there any implications for how we or Russia deal with China? So China and Xi Jinping have supported Russia in its war against Ukraine. Um, they've supported Putin. But any perceived weakness in Putin um, could make China reevaluate that relationship. Uh, to me, the, the bigger question, though, is what it means for Xi domestically. Um, and I guess so two, two parts of that question. Um, you know, the challenge to Putin was a domestic one. So I think Xi is going to be re-evalu- reevaluating um, his potential domestic threats, the, the threats in, inside China to his rule, to his power. Um, so he might make some moves to further isolate potential domestic challengers to his rule. Um, he also may want to look to rally the Chinese people to his side. Um, and this is something I think Westerners need to, and investors need to keep an eye on. Um, and again, this has kind of two parts to it. Um, so China's struggled a little bit to, to reopen following COVID. Um, and I think that could be hurting Xi's standing at home. So economically, he may look to accelerate economic stimulus that, that Chinese officials have been looking at. Um, he could also look abroad and take some action that would kind of stir Chinese patriotism and cause the public to rally around him. So there's an internal economic response, possibly, and possibly an external response as well. Um, that that external response could be disruptive to international markets, depending on what it is and how he how handles it. Um, well, that the former, the the economic stimulus, that, that could help uh, uh, financial markets. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, it's tough to know exactly what's going on uh, within the inner circles of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but I think investors should pay more attention to China than they typically do, given yeah. the situation in Russia. Yeah. It sounds like foreign policy, you know, the past couple of years, foreign policy is always important, but the last couple of election cycles, I feel have been really dominated by domestic issues, but I feel like foreign policy is going to be a much bigger deal this time around. We'll, we'll, we'll see on that. I, I, you know, I think it's too early to say um, Americans tend to look internally a lot more. Yeah. Um, that's why foreign policy is, is, is rarely the, the big issue that um, people expect it to be. It's also going to compete for attention with the economy, social issues, cultural issues, um, and I'll, I'll throw out uh, another word um, that might be inflammatory to some, but corruption, uh, really on both sides. You know, mm-hmm. perceived corruption, if it is Trump, perceived corruption by Trump, um, and on the, you know, looking from a Republican perspective, perceived corruption by the Biden administration and kind of deep state type of, of accusations. I, I, to, to me, those will dominate. Um, and, uh, you know, foreign policy could pop up, but my guess is at the end of the day, domestic issues will overwhelm foreign policy concerns. Yeah. I feel like there's always enough corruption to go around. (laughs) There's always enough, enough corruption charges to, to, uh, to fill the time, if we well, need. you know, you know, I try and call it down the middle, um, so I don't want to alienate uh, any of our uh, any of our listeners. Um, there is plenty to go around, so um, uh, you know, I'm not calling out one side versus the other. Um, they both have their issues to to deal right. with. 
That's Washington, That's right? Washington. That's what makes that, 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 as John. You know, we'll wrap it up with a baseball metaphor analogy. As as John Sterling on Yankee broad, radio broadcast likes to say. That's baseball, Susan. That's that's right. That's right. Hopefully he's that's, that's that's politics, Neil. Yeah. And I don't know if John Sterling is a fan or a listener of the podcast, but I hope he's feeling better after taking that foul ball yeah. to the face. And I, I think even more bruising than the foul ball was was the social media um uh, attention. Yep. And I'm saying it lightly um, to that incident. But anyway, Brian, um, good stuff. I think we're out of time for this week. But thanks, as always, for jo- for uh, hopping on with me. Sure. Uh, a, a, an early happy Fourth of July, Neil. Um, That's right. Same about a week you. away, so next week. So we won't be we won't be taping next week. But uh, happy Independence Day, and um, to our British listeners, you know, sorry about that. That's right. Keep keep the lights on while we're while we're out. Keep yeah. keep the keep the work going. Yeah, and actually, that's a good plug. Download the podcast. Play it for any long trips. A day at the beach. What better? Have you know what better than July Fourth? Have a barbecue. Go to the beach. Have a little Potomac perspective blasting on your speakers while you have the crowd over. It's. I mean, what more could you ask for? It, not a lot. It's 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 it really is a great American tradition now. <laughs> That is true. But I I echo those sentiments. Happy fourth to you, Brian, and to everybody else. And thanks for listening. And we'll have we'll be back with another episode of Potomac Perspective soon. Thanks so much.